opening story, I, told, I was talking to somebody yesterday, and, and, they, and I said, uh, in the course of the conversation, it came up, and we were talking about serial killers. I know, weird, right? And, uh, and I said, yeah, I'm going to actually mention Jeffrey Dahmer tomorrow. And he goes, and this is a guy that, you know, he, doesn't know, he knows what I do. And he's like, you're going to talk about Jeffrey Dahmer in church? <laughs> I'm like, I sure am. I'm opening my message with it. And he's like, okay, <laughs> good luck with that. But the reason I'm doing that is because some of you don't know who he is. Let me just give you an update on who he is because of a decision that he made at some point. So he is a serial killer. Back in the late 70s through the early 90s, he killed 17 men or young men or boys in grotesque ways. Did grotesque things to them after the fact or during, I don't know how, he, I don't know how it all went down. He got 16 years, life, 16 life sentences by the end of the day. He only lasted about three years in prison before he was beaten to death in 94, late 94. Well, in early 94, Stone Phillips had him on Dateline and interviewed him, talked to him, talked to his dad, talked to him, and talked to his pastor. Now, when I say his pastor, I mean the pastor that he began a relationship with once he was in prison. Long story short, from the course of that interview, you learn that, G- that Jeffrey Dahmer believes that Jesus Christ is basically who he claims to be and that we're all accountable to him. And in the course of that conversation with Stone Phillips, you also learn that he believes, that he trusts and follows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. At that time, that's what he, he said. Father backs up the claim, pastor backs up the claim. Now, I don't know how that makes you feel to hear that. probably some skepticism, which would be understandable. But even if we just set aside the fact that he might have had a reason for saying those things, even though they weren't true, let's just imagine for a second that they were actually true, that he genuinely trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior in March of the year that he later dies in November. How do we feel about that? How do we feel about a God who would allow someone to go to heaven, be forgiven for those sins. Late in life, he trusts Christ right, you know, before he dies. How do we feel about that? Well, apparently, this was an issue back then because Jesus speaks to this issue in today's passage. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear those kinds of deathbed confessions and things like that, I'm skeptical and I'm cynical and I'm kind of a little bit like, that's just not really fair. That just doesn't seem just. But Jesus has a different take on that and I'm going to walk you through this passage that basically says this. The gift of salvation, which many of us in here have enjoyed, enjoy and have received, comes from a God who is just and generous. The gift of salvation is just and generous. There's no injustice in it, and there's no stinginess in it. Okay? But I'm going to let Jesus explain why I say that, because these are his words that I want to make sure that that's what matters. So... I'd like to pray again if I could. Lord, um, I need your help with this. 
I confess my sins and I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse me and fill me with your spirit, that I may speak the words you want me to say, no more, no less, in the way you want them said, in such a way that it brings you, Lord Jesus, all the honor and glory you deserve. Because I know that in doing that, you will change lives too. And so I pray for those who are watching online. I pray for those who are in the room. I pray for those we'll talk to about this after this hour. And I ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus, last week we saw, was confronting the rich young ruler. And he talked about how hard it is for the wealthy to inherit the kingdom of God. And really, without God, it's impossible to inherit the kingdom of God. But with God, it's more than possible because God can, he can save anyone. It comes down to the heart. And that a huge barrier to salvation is wealth. Because if I have wealth, then I don't need God. Is not unfamiliar territory for a lot of people. Well, In my Bible, where he says he ends last week, where he ends this week. Verse 30 of chapter 19 says, But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This chapter, this verse 16 says in 20, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. He's reminding us that the kingdom of God is upside down from the way we think about things. Worldly, the world, the ways of the world are counter 180 to the ways of God. And it should bother us if we don't feel that tension ever. It should bother us. But that's another sermon for another time. Starting in verse 1, let's see what Jesus has to say. And most of these, I'm sorry, all of these words I'm reading as we work through this are all the words of Jesus. He's telling a parable, which is a story that is designed to do two things, at least. Besides communicate the main point, it's designed to reveal to some and to conceal from others which is kind of odd to think that it can do both, but Jesus is pretty good at this. And the stories he tells are connected to the condition of the heart. If your heart is open, then you're going to receive and believe, or at least you're going to understand so that at some point you can receive and believe. And if your heart is hard against the things of God, this is going to be confusing and it might not make any sense at all. That doesn't mean you can't get there. There's many parables I still read and I go, (laughs) I need some help with this one. (laughs) Maybe I'm just hard-hearted still and that's the problem, but um, Lord is gracious and patient with me too. But this is another parable. There's usually a main point and the rest of it's imagery, in this case simile, like a metaphor, but like an as. And um, it's most, many of his, not all of his parables, many of them are about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So just remember that kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are the saying the same thing two different ways, and they are also talking about salvation and eternal life. All of those things go together, okay? And they are oftentimes interchanged when they are mentioned in Scripture. Okay, with that preamble, let's jump in. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner or a master or a lord who went out early in the morning think 6 a.m., to hire workers for his vineyard. Okay, this man, this landowner has a vineyard. He has a farm. He has a ranch, whatever you want to call it. And on that ranch, he has vineyards. He's growing grapes. And he has his core crew of farmer hands that workers that would help him do the work throughout the year. 
And then comes the harvest. And the harvest is crucial. It's where you make or break your financial condition that year because you're going to sell off most of it. So he needs, to get the, uh, he needs to get the harvest in at the right time, not too early, not too late, and he needs to get it in quickly so it doesn't spoil. So to do that, he hires extra workers that he doesn't hire the rest of the year because this is a big job that needs to happen quickly. So just kind of think that in the back of your mind. Verse 2, so he, go, well, he, went, he hired early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. Verse 2, he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Okay, a denarius is a coin, was a coin, is a coin, was, was a coin worth a day's wages. So if you, make, if you work a 12-hour day and you make 10 bucks an hour, that, a coin's worth $120 in, in layman terms in, for a laborer in that day. And, and if you think, kind of think um, labor pool, like, um, and this still happens in countries um, around the world, even in some places in the U.S., but mostly in other countries. If you're a, if you're a landowner and you need some workers, there's a place where work, people who are looking for jobs for the day hang out. And when you drive up in your truck, I need five, and then they just know you're hiring them for the day, and then you're going to pay them at the end of the day. That, that still happens in some, that's kind of what we're seeing here, okay? So he agrees to pay this guy, these guys that he hires at 6 a.m., he agrees to pay them a denarius for a full day's work, okay, for the day, and then he sent them into this vineyard to, to work on the harvest. Verse 3, about 9 in the morning, some Bibles say the third hour, that's the third hour after 6 a.m., third hour of the day was considered 9 a.m., and 9 in the morning, he went out and he saw others standing in the marketplace, same place, doing nothing. So I don't know if he's running errands or if he's looking for more help. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. So whatever is right is probably his way of saying, we'll work it out later. I promise you I'm not going to cheat you. I'm going to pay you an equivalent of a day's wage, percentage of a day's wage, because you're going to work a percentage of a day. So if you work three-fourths of the day, you're going to get three-fourths of a denarius. And they're just, that's just kind of the understanding. This is the way things happen. This is the way it worked. This was a daily occurrence except for the Sabbath in this day and time. And these workers would have understood this. The landowner understood this. Then he continues. Oh, well, let, me, let me also help you. As we go, I'm going to point out the symbolisms here, okay? So the landowner is, is representing God the Father, Okay? God owns everything. And in fact, the literal translation of the word landowner is Lord, even though it's, it's little L Lord, not big L Lord, meaning not necessarily meaning the Lord Jesus just means Lord, like a man, master. The workers are, are symbolic of Christians. Okay? And I think you'll see that come into focus. It took me a while to see that. Okay, so, um, and then this is not the main point of it, but I want to throw this out. The vineyard represents the harvest. This is symbolic of Israel, okay? And it's really symbolic of the world in the sense that um, the harvest is spiritual language for a spiritual harvest, which is people entering the kingdom of God, moving from enemies of God to children of God. It's the process of becoming... a a citizen of the kingdom, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So workers, all right, are Christians in this parable. All right, here we go. So then he says, uh, let's see, verse, uh, verse 5 says, So they went. He went out again 
about noon, and then about three in the afternoon, so the the sixth hour, the ninth hour, and did the same thing, hired more workers. And then at about five in the afternoon, I guess that's the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. Interesting question. He asked him, why have you been standing here all day and doing nothing? I think some translations say idle being idle. Okay, so um, God doesn't intend us to be idle. And idle, if you think about it, if you're in a car, and now I have to say a, a, a car that doesn't run on any electricity, you're at the light, it idles. It's sitting there running but not doing anything, not propelling you anywhere, okay? Um, a car is designed to get you somewhere. So it's not doing, it's not fulfilling its full function, its most important function, unless it's moving you in the direction you need to go. And these workers were not doing what they were saved to do if they're standing idle. Anyway, no extra charge for that. That's another sermon for another time, but just want to throw that out there. All right, so then he says this. Um, let's see. About five, okay, why have you been standing here doing nothing? Their answer in verse 7 is because no one has hired us, <laughs> they answered. You see, this is important to note. They don't have control over whether they get to work or not. They're looking for someone to hire them because they don't have their own job. They need to work. They want to feed their family. They're willing to work. But unless somebody chooses them to work, they're not a worker yet. Now, he calls them workers, but they're not workers until they work. And that's, you're not a Christian until you've become a Christ follower. Okay, it'll come together. Verse uh, 7 continues, he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So he just hired somebody one hour from quitting time, and he's going to pay them for whatever is right. Okay, so that's where we are, y'all. Y'all with me? All right, now it starts to get interesting. The plot thickens. Okay, verse 8, when evening came, so that's, at least 6 o'clock, that's the end of the workday. It's harvest season, so I'm thinking later. But nevertheless, the point is, evening came, quitting time is here, and the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired going on to the first. Now, this is he does it reverse for the point that he's going to make. If he the other way, we, the, the ones that need to hear what he needs to say wouldn't be there. They'd, they'd get their pay and leave. But he's making a point in the parable. The landowner's making a point. In our lives, he's making a point that we all need to hear. Verse 9, that the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, that means those who'd worked just one hour, and came each received a denarius. Now, if you're, if you're scratching your head going, wait a minute, I thought that was a day's wages. You're right. A denarius is for 12 hours. They work one hour. They get the denarius. No explanation. They get a denarius. They're excited and they leave. They can't believe their fortune, good fortune. So when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Okay, think about that. Think about how you feel. Think about the perceived, do I believe that was just or unjust, that runs through your mind. But each one of them also received a denarius. Verse 11, when they received it, they began to grumble, complain against the landowner. So now we have Christians complaining or grumbling against God. Okay, that's... That's the imagery that's working on here. And he says this. This is the, the, the grumblers. 
Verse 12, these who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. They only worked one hour and they worked in the shade essentially because it was late in the day. Do you hear how they feel? You kind of get it? Yeah, I can kind of see that. I can kind of feel that. I'd kind of feel that way myself probably. I I think I would. I I would at least be disappointed that I didn't see more come my way because it really doesn't seem equitable to me. Oh, we hear those words, don't we, these days? Equitable, equity, equality, um, fair. Let's see what he has to say. Let's see what the landowner has to say. Verse 13, but the answer, but he, but he, that is the landowner, answered one of them. Apparently there's a spokesman he's inter- interacting with. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Okay, that's just a flat-out statement. And then he says why. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Okay, now let's just think about this for a second. The man's not got a job. He can't get a job unless someone hires him. He has no control over that. He can show up. He can hand his resume, he can look qualified, but until somebody picks him, he's not hired. And when he's picked, he says, yes, I agree to work a whole day for one day's wage, a denarius. They agreed, shook hands, whatever, however that worked, and off he went to work. He did what he said he was going to do, and the owner pays him what he expected to receive. Is that just? Absolutely. Salvation works like that. Okay, we don't like that. But salvation is the same for everyone, whether they accept it at nine years old, at 90 years old. We baptized a 90-something-year-old a few years back. That was beautiful. And he trusted Christ late in life. It wasn't just like, yeah, I've been trying not to get baptized. I don't like all that water. No, he was late in life, came to the Lord, Mr. Charles. Or if you're on your deathbed. But there's more. This is the first point, though. God's God's gift of salvation is just. And why is it just? Because God is holy, and justice is a fruit of holiness. But there's more. He says, "Um, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Verse 14, take your pay and go. Some translations say pick it up which implies he threw it down. I can picture him taking that denarius, throwing it in the dirt and go, you made us equal to those that only worked one hour. I could see, I could hear the anger, the offense, but it's based on nothing noble. It's based on greed or selfishness or some twisted sense of justice. But when we read this, we can relate, which should bother us, Take your pay and go. I want, to, I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? God's gift of salvation is not only just, it's generous. And our temptation, when things go differently for other people than for us, is to see God as not just and to see God as unfairly generous 
to people that he shouldn't be so generous to, like people who are on their deathbed. It's almost like we have a better way to see people get saved than God does. It's like we think we understand how this works. We don't. That's why he ends with verses like, and the last will be first and the first will be last. All right? We put the first are first and the last are last, right? We want the people running for our political goals. We want them to be the strongest, most powerful. We want them to be fighters. We want them to be um, good communicators. We want them to rally the troops from the grassroots to the rooftops, right? And that's who we're going to choose. Because who's going to choose somebody weak? Because that's, that's just stupid. Who would choose a weak person to be a, a leader in our nation? And yet, Jesus says, well, that's not how God sees things through the kingdom lens. And I'm not telling you that we should elect weak people to office. That's not my point. The point is that God's kingdom is about way more than our kingdom, the American kingdom or any other country's kingdom. And while those governmental apparatuses are all important and actually God-given, they don't operate with God-given principles, generally speaking, which is what frustrates so many of us, right, in the political process. Okay? And that's why we need to be paying attention if God's leading us into public service and leading us in how to vote, and we should be a part of the process but we need to be careful where our allegiances lie. And I, that's another thing I don't mean to get into that other than to say there's a difference between partisanship and politics. And politics is the process of negotiating how we're going to do life as a society. Partisanship is an allegiance to a particular ideology, philosophy, on how to do that. And whatever way you pick, you know, that's a partisan way to go about it. It's It's not necessarily right or wrong, although I do think there are times when platforms have things that are just fundamentally wrong, but there's still choices before us. God is saying, my kingdom doesn't operate like your kingdoms, because your kingdoms are run by sinners who are not looking to me for leadership. Okay? And so we live in the midst of that. But his point here is this, and I'll come back to it. The gift of salvation is just. It's not unfairly delivered even though not everyone receives it. Remember, I see the invitation is to the world. I see the word of God in our world calling all to come to him. So why do so few do it? Why do most stay on that broad road that leads to destruction? Why do so few find the narrow way that leads to life? Because it's a 180 degrees way of thinking than the way we think about society apart from God. And so we have challenges in our lives. We have challenges in our cities and in our nation. And we scratch our heads and we're like, I don't know how to fix this. I don't know what's wrong with this. And the problem is we're not doing things the way God would lead us to do. We don't think the last will be first, but he does. So when you're thinking about salvation and you're tempted to think, well, Jeffrey Dahmer doesn't deserve it. If assuming that he was genuine in his, we don't know. He didn't live long enough for us to see, to know, look at, look at his life. We can look at, we don't, we didn't get that. But if he did, God is just in forgiving him just as just as he is forgiving you and me. Because in God's eyes, my sin is just as wretched as Jeffrey Dahmer's. And that's hard for me to get my brain around. 
because I want to use a standard that's different than the one he uses. Okay, some of y'all have heard me tell my sheep story. Uh, Imagine you're in the UK and there's a shepherd out in the country with sheep and they're all white sheep and the grass is starting to spring. Spring, it's early, the grass is coming up, it's still cool at night, but the grass is turning green and the sheep look white and fluffy and and, um, beautiful in in the meadow. But it's it's a late snow and the snow comes down that night and the ground is covered the next morning with this new fallen snow and the shepherd who admired his sheep yesterday looked at him and go, did they have a mud wrestling match last night? Because they look horrible against that snow. And they didn't change at all. The sheep are the same color they were the night before. What changed was the backdrop. The standard by which they were being judged changed. And they didn't look so fluffy and white and clean, did they? because they were against a fresh, new-fallen, white, pure white snow. God uses his standard of holiness when he is looking at us, when he is deciding whether or not he's going to forgive us. And I'm just grateful that God is merciful. We sang about his mercy today. My sins are many, his mercy is more. Man, that... That's good news because I'm a sinner in need of his mercy. And apart from his mercy, I have no hope because he has to decide to hire me, so to speak, that I become a worker in his kingdom as a follower of Christ. He is not just saving me just so that I can walk down an aisle, shake somebody's hand, and then walk out and go, I got my insurance policy. I am saved. No, no. There's work to do that is evidence that when I trusted Christ, it was for real. There's fruit in my life that's kingdom work. They're working in the harvest. That means they're working amongst people who don't know the Lord so that those people might see the gospel in them and hear the gospel from them. How about you and me? Are we doing that? I have to ask myself that question. This doesn't, I know it counts, but this isn't going to count when I'm asking myself that question. Because when I'm out in the supermarket, when I'm out getting gas, when I'm out with other people, are they seeing the gospel in me? Or am I secret agent Christian so that nobody really knows? The fruit of genuine salvation that is a gift that is just and generous is that I am I I can't stop talking about my Lord because he saved me. He's not just my Savior, though. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's my landowner, right? Everything, he owns it all. My house paid off. It's his. It's not mine. It's his. And if he asks for it back, he can have it. That's the mindset. It's 180 degrees from the world, right? It's challenging, isn't it? hard and yet it's good news when we understand what about you where are you did he invite you to come and join him in his kingdom mission his kingdom harvest his kingdom work are you hired so to speak are you on the crew that's working the harvest? 
It doesn't have to be tied to this church or any church. I mean, if you're doing the work of Christ, you're doing the work of the church. Ideally, it's better to do with others, join arms, lock arms, and let's go do this together. But we do it where we live, work, and play. We do it where we live, work, learn, and play. All of us is what we're called to. And it's evidence that my salvation is good and true is, is will be seen in the way that I live. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about where we stand with you, I pray we would ask ourselves right now the question, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me, Lord? Just ask ourselves right now, what are you saying to me, Lord? Some of us know we just need to repent and believe. We need to remember who we are, children of the king, or maybe not yet. And if we're not, we need to remember who we are, enemies of the king. Lord, um, maybe we need to think about how we move from where we are to where we need to be, and it is repent and believe. It's turn away from my sins. It's turn away from my mindset that is so worldly that it doesn't look any different than anyone else in the world. And I need to think and turn 180 degrees to the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus who leads us to follow you. Some of us need to, um, we need to just stop grumbling and complaining about things that you're doing, God, that we think are unjust when in fact they're just, like this worker. We need to stop grumbling and complaining. Lord, you tell us through the book of James, you tell us through the book of First or Second Peter, you tell us through the Gospels, you tell us through the writings of Paul, stop grumbling. Lord, help us embrace that and realize that to grumble and complain is a sin against you. It's not just not polite. And Lord, help us to let go of this attitude of begrudging people who have received more grace than they deserve. And forgive us when that comes from an attitude that we got it because we deserved it. None of us deserve God's grace. None of us deserve your grace. And may we stop begrudging you and others when that grace is so generous that it makes us uncomfortable. May we instead join them in celebrating the goodness of God in that moment. This is hard. We need you to do a work in our hearts, Lord. We can't We can't muster this up. We can't just behave ourselves into this. We need you to change our heart. Our heart is dead spiritually until you bring it and make it alive in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray right now we would ask you to do that if we haven't already. Lord, I want to be alive in Christ. I want to turn away from living the way this world lives, and I want to turn and follow you. I want to walk in the words and the ways and the works of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins so that I could do this. And I pray that you will save me from my sins and that you will change me from the inside out into the beautiful person you created me to be and intended for me to become. And may you, Lord, get all the glory from that, for that change at the end of the day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of our services, we typically end with the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of the cross, which is the price that was paid for us to be able to pray that prayer we just prayed, right? No cross, no crown. Next week, we celebrate 
Next Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. Well, resurrection from what? We have to remember backwards three days, right? Sunday, Saturday, Friday, when Jesus hung on the cross. We call it Good Friday because we get the goods. It was not a good day for in every other way because Jesus was betrayed Thursday night, arrested Thursday night, mock trial after mock trial after mock trial, crucified, hung on a cross for six hours, suffocated and all other kinds of things to death, died, put into a tomb, dead, wrapped, the whole gamut. And if that was all it was, if that's all that he had done, then he would have been a good martyr, but he would not have been the savior of the world. It took God raising him literally, physically, bodily from the grave miraculously, supernaturally took him doing that. And the world will tell you it's all symbolism and it's all spiritual and there's no real thing that happened. It happened. That's what was so amazing is that somebody who was dead, dead, dead was then alive and walking around and interacting with people who knew and loved him for 40 days following before he ascended to be with the Father in heaven. Okay, And I'm standing here telling you in 2023, I believe those things to be literally true. I believe the Bible presents them as literally true. And that is why we have a reason to believe in someone 2,000 years ago that can change your life. If he can rise from the dead, then he can forgive me for my sins. Because he was the only one who died sinless on the cross for the sins of the world. He's the only one. And my faith in him is a gift God gives me from the Father to believe and put into action in such a way that I enter the harvest with him and I get to watch other people experience that too. I don't know if you've seen the movie The Jesus Revolution. I encourage you to go see it because it's a picture of a Jesus movement in our country back in the 70s. It's based based on several true stories that are woven together. And basically you get to kind of see Christianity on steroids. The, The thing is... In our country, we don't get to see it very much like the book of Acts. Our Christianity in America doesn't look very much like Christianity in the book of Acts. And that's not God's fault. That's on us. Well, maybe it's time for us to wake up and say, God, we want you and we want all of you, not just our little pastel-colored version of you, our stained-glass version of you. We want the real deal. But be careful what you ask for because it will cost Not that salvation costs you. It is a free gift. It will cost us because to follow Christ means to take up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow him. And that will cost us, and it's worth it. It's worth it because it leads others to the free gift that we've already received. You see glimpses of that and through imperfect people in the movie. It's just another example of what has happened and multiple times in our country's history. We need it again. We need him to revive us. We need him to wake us up from our spiritual slumber so that we don't just keep going through the motions, okay? Our traditions and our churches are important, and those motions matter, but we need to wake up so that we actually engage what's happening in the room and what's happening in the scriptures and what's happening in our lives as followers of Christ together, together. And I can't control how that happens. I can't make that happen. I can only control how I choose to enter into this. And I'm choosing to come and just, God, I surrender all again. You've given me much, but you've given it to me to give. 
And if you take it all, my hands need to be like this so that he can take anything he wants from me for the purposes of his kingdom and his glory, and I need to be okay with that. And that's a battle for me. Surrender is a battle for me every day because I want to do this. When I get something good, I want to keep it. But in the words of the great theologians, DC Talk, love isn't love until you give it away. And that's what he's called. L-O-V-E. And that chases away the fears that we battle that keep us from surrendering all. Lord, I thank you for the power and the ability to actually understand that. I pray that you will help us surrender all. I pray that we would be a church that surrenders all. Lord, I know that's impractical, and I know that that doesn't make sense, and I have no idea how that plays out here. Um, But it's not really my problem. I just want to see it. I want to be a part of it, a small but real part of it. I want to see it sweep our country, sweep our nation, and change hearts and minds forever, change family trees forever, change the way that we live. Lord, I can't do that, but you do that. Absolutely, you do that to those who surrender their hearts to you. May we be found faithful to do that. In Christ's name, amen.